Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. The 2022 Thomas D. Clark Foundation Medallion Book, presented by the University Press of Kentucky, was awarded to Dr. Alistine Turley and her well-received publication, The Gospel of Freedom, Black Evangelicals and the Underground Railroad. Before we discuss her new book on the podcast today, a little bit about Dr. Turley. She was born in Hazard, Kentucky, and prior to becoming an educator and public historian, Dr. Turley uh, worked in law enforcement as a community organizer. She was the founding director of the Carter G. Woodson Center for International Education at Berea College. She's also uh, a longtime scholar of history and political science, sociology and anthropology. She obtained a master's degree from Mississippi State University in public policy and from the University of Kentucky in American history, where she Uh, also remained and graduated with a Doctor of Philosophy in American History. And during that time, she also became the founding director of the Underground Railroad Research Institute at Georgetown College. She says on her website, storytelling is as American as apple pie and very much a part of African-American and Appalachian life, culture, and community. And I will add and have more information a little bit later that she's a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and uh, speaks on not only her book, but um, a lot of information that I think she probably was speaking on all along. And we didn't know it was going to turn into well, she did, but we didn't, that it was going to turn into this marvelous new book that uh, the University Press of Kentucky uh, has uh, published now. Uh, So, Dr. Turley, once again, uh, welcome and congratulations on such a fine work. Thank you so much, Bill. You write uh, in the introduction of the the Gospel of Freedom, uh, this writing places enslaved African-Americans at the center of their freedom struggle with the understanding that American abolitionism was a sustained international freedom movement driven by the determination of an unseen Black community. Talk to me and broaden that statement to begin with, if you will. Oh, well, I have to say that, um, of course, I have a personal connection to the story, which I think we'll talk about a little later. But the ideas of Wilbur Siebert, who became the first historian to actually begin the task of documenting the history of the Underground Railroad, which was very, uh, not a widely discussed subject. So his 1898 book, The Underground Railroad, was the fir- one of the first books I read on the subject. And when I looked at Siebert's map, and I encourage all your listeners to do the same when they look at this map, The thing that struck me and and set me on a path to research was that all the pathways began at the Kentucky border. And I thought, well, how can you talk about freedom 
and not be talking about what was going on below the Mason-Dixon line. And that's really where I began to try and piece together what the map looked like in Kentucky. There, if, there, if there were that many exit points along the Ohio, Indiana, Illinois border coming out of Kentucky, that had to mean that there was something going on in the state of Kentucky. And that's where I started my research. You touch on so many uh, key areas that I want to return to, but I also want to know a little bit more about uh, Wilbur Siebert. Uh, his book published in 1898. Correct. What um, What do you think was the mindset at that time, some uh, 20 years or so uh, after the, the Civil War, um, at a time when I'm sure all of this was was new territory, and this was, for him and for his readers at that time, groundbreaking, I'm sure. What, what, how was it received? Do you have any idea? It was received well, and what his impetus for, for writing the book was because so he became aware, he was a professor of history at Ohio University, and he um, realized two things, that his students were bored with history, that's number one, because history can be a hard subject to teach. And this was his way of engaging his students in doing writing and research. And once he began to engage the students, he found out how many of these uh, former abolitionists and Underground Railroad operators were anxious to tell their story and excited that no one had ever asked them anything about it. And so he began, we, we have to thank him actively for what he did with all the Northern abolitionists. His focus was primarily on people in Ohio. And he developed an extensive map of Underground Railroad locations in Ohio. And we have to forever thank him for that. But what was exciting for me in a review of Siebert's work was how many Kentucky names were part of that uh, Ohio network. And so, again, if you understand the system and the fact that African-Americans and white abolitionists out of Kentucky were formally expelled from the state beginning about the 1840s for their uh, abolitionist beliefs, but they didn't go very far. They just went across the river and um, kept the fight going on, in, on the Ohio, Indiana and Illinois side of the river. Before we get into the um, some of the chapters and and some of the writing on uh, the, I want you to define for me the first great awakening, the second great awakening. That that we're going to return to those in just a minute. But I am somewhat interested in in the demarcation line, the the Mason Dixon line, and did did Siebert also use that as a um, as the line that it is and that it was uh, during yes. the Civil War, um, as a uh, a place where something else was going on above the Mason-Dixon line and something else was going on below it in the, in the southern states? Yes, he did. And so by doing that, he has positioned the North as the hero and champion and the South a bit demonized for their uh, need to hold on to slavery, their need and desire to hold on to slavery. So I think for many Americans, this is why we have the impression historically that slavery was a Southern concept. And it's sometimes we overlook the fact that every state 
I mean, it was a federally adopted, accepted system. Slavery was all over America. So, but through Siebert's work, uh, he pretty much puts the focus on the North as the hero and the South as the villainized uh, anti-hero of American history. And in your research, you didn't find that. In my research, I found that there were people in the South who were just as actively engaged in the Underground Railroad activity as there were in the North. And it, it's a misconcept to believe that uh, the North was a welcoming open door to escaping slaves. It was not. In fact, uh, one of the biggest arguments I had with the location of the Freedom Center in Cincinnati is the fact that that very Black neighborhood was burned down twice <laughs> to keep to get rid of the African-American population in Cincinnati. So, and that happened all over the country. So there were no safe havens for African-Americans anywhere in America. There might've been some freedom gained if they moved West, but traditionally many African-Americans knew they had to keep moving outside the United States to find real freedom. If we had a visual, and I want you to sort of do that for us on a podcast, it's a, a little bit difficult, but there's an excellent uh, map of Kentucky uh, where you have, um, I'm sure your own words, uh, you call a Kentucky a pass-through state. Uh, there's another term that I have written down here too, uh, a corridor, escape corridor. Yes. Um, and the, the map, if you will describe, shows um where the entry points were and then where the the out uh, migration uh points were uh and they were really all along the borders he heading north talk about that that kentucky map a little bit well that kentucky map was created by collecting over 600 underground railroad escape ads from kentucky newspapers and the ads were collected from people who were advertising for the return of their escape property. And the ads were a wonderful source of information. It, it contained a great a description of the escaping slave, an idea of where the slave was thought to be running to, the reasons for why the slave ran away, and an, an amount uh, that gave a value to, to to the slave, how much he was worth, how much they were willing to repay or repay to have he or she returned, um, who they escaped with, all that information was it's it's a tremendous source. So we created a database and developed these escape routes, escape maps that you see now in the book. And uh, what we discovered was the connection that Kentucky had with Northern Tennessee and Eastern Tennessee. And uh, Reverend Samuel Dope, who was a Presbyterian anti-slavery minister who actually stationed several anti-slavery Presbyterians along the Kentucky-Tennessee uh, border in order to establish these anti-slavery um, locations to help escaping slaves and to try and preach an anti-slavery doctrine. This is where you get the birth of what we now call Cumberland Presbyterians, 
who were in uh, opposition to much of what was considered the Presbyterians out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So this is the birth of the Cumberland Presbyterians, and he gets labeled by those uh, uh, Northern Presbyterians as a, as a uh, what do they call him, log cabin Presbyterians. They, they kind of, he was seen as not quite up to the academic um, rigors of Presbyterianism, although he was a graduate of Princeton University. So- uh, Was he white? He, yeah, oh yes, most yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. But he he did not believe in slavery. He preached an anti-slavery message. John Rankin, if everyone knows that Rankin House in Ohio, and we we don't we fail to mention that Rankin was actually kicked out of Kentucky. But um, uh, Doak was his professor. So uh, if John Rankin would be a good example of Doak's philosophy regarding slavery. Now was was this during the the Second Great Awakening? This was during the Second Great Awakening when Red River uh, uh, Revival happened over in Logan County, Kentucky. Uh, Samuel Doak dispatched many Presbyterian ministers, number one, to help organize the revival and to spread Presbyterianism throughout Kentucky in the West. And Doak had a theory that if Presbyterians are known for education. And so his uh, theory was that if you could educate both the enslaved and the enslaver, that it would end slavery, that people were only uh, behaving in this very sinful, bad manner because they didn't understand God's rule and he had made all things and that with education, people could be educated out of the concept of slavery. Did the Cumberland part of Cumberland Presbyterian, I'm, I'm learning something possibly for the very first time in my life, was that from the Cumberland Plateau, the Cumberland Mountains, the Cumberland River, the Cumberland Gap? Yes, yes, yes. yes. He, he, uh, he had a big influence on the ministers that he sent to that region. And at one time, that was the primary way that people came into the state was through the Cumberland Gap. But instead of going up towards central uh bluegrass, which we talk a lot about. There was this other group that just spread along that border between Tennessee and Kentucky uh, to try. It's an open territory. They were invited to come because uh, they wanted to host this revival, which took off spontaneously in uh, Logan County and spread to Cane Ridge. We talk about Cane Ridge. It's the same people, but we often overlook the Red River uh, revival, which wasn't as large as Cane Ridge, but, but the same idea that people were spreading uh, this religious revival through the Western frontier. So give me a, a definition then of the, the, the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening and, and how much emphasis in historical fact you place on uh, the religious uh, rigor that uh, really uh, lended itself to uh, anti the anti-slavery movement. Yeah, and I, I was surprised myself in writing the book that I did not realize that uh, Christianity and religion would play such a big part in the story. But once I began to do the research and you find um, First Great Awakening, 
you have uh, John, you have Presbyterians based, uh, sorry, all the religious groups, Baptist, Presbyterians, Methodists, who are the largest groups at the time, coming uh, to America from England primarily. And they, they see this as a fertile ground uh, that Americans are basically unchurched and they really need to have the spiritual gospel spread. And so at the time of the first great awakening, there's just simply an acknowledgement that, that African-Americans should be exposed to the gospels. There's no, you can't say that during that first great awakening, African no one was really pushing anti-slavery or uh, escapism or any of those things. Yeah. They were just simply saying to their masters, you have to educate, you have to treat your enslaved people uh, expose them to the gospels and this what time period are we in what what decade or what what century we're talking prior to the revolutionary war okay oh i see all right so i so from the 17 late 1700s until to roughly the 1800s mm -hmm. early 1800s and so by 1801 when uh we have the great revival at Cane Ridge, but I think the revival, I have to go back and look at the book myself, Bill, but uh, the date for it, when they come over to Logan County, uh, is when the second great awakening is credited with beginning in the West. And it is a Kentucky story. You know, the, the uh, great awakening, second great awakening is really a big Kentucky story. And it spreads from Logan County, which is West and goes East into Cane Ridge. Mm -hmm. But all along that path it, to, toward Cane Ridge, there are these many revivals happening uh, all over the state that mm -hmm. culminate in Cane Ridge. And from there, African-Americans are not only viewed as being worthy of hearing the gospel, but preaching the gospel and being ordained to be carriers of the gospel to other parts of the country. So you have a great many African-Americans. I think in the book, I talk about um, Freeborn Garrett's Garrison and others who came into the, who sent people into the state and African-American ministers who become ministers because of the Second Great Awakening. And it's really that group of people who make it their mission that they are going to um, free African-Americans through using religious and moral persuasion. So that was uh, the origins of the first and, and second uh, Great Awakening. The The Great Revival came later. The Great Revival is a part of that second Great Awakening. Yes. Those Great Revivals, both at Cane Ridge and Red River, they are considered the opening gates of the second Great Awakening. And so there's no question, because the research took you there, that the, the strength of the movement at that time was from the church, uh, from um, abolition, uh, from anti-slavery uh, preaching, and what they were not only uh, doing to help um, African Americans, but what African Americans were doing for themselves, they they recognized right. that this was something that we needed, and that we're we're, we're becoming educated. There, I'm sure they were learning to read uh, yes. through the church and 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 write and and become educated. Correct. 
And that was, of course, the Presbyterians, especially there in Lexington. Uh, Presbyterians began uh, establishing African-American schools as part of their ministry. And that's still very much a large part of the Presbyterian mission today. Um, so they were educating their enslaved. In fact, it was a mandate from the Presbyterian church that if you were during the first great awakening, that if you're going to hold slaves and it's you have an obligation to teach them to read the gospels. And so for education of enslaved African-Americans, that's where their education began, which was the reading of the gospels, understanding the scriptures. Well, of course, they weren't anticipating, I don't think, that this um, knowledge of the gospels would lead to open revolt or um, uh, that. I think that was just a byproduct when African-Americans began, and then African-Americans began to use the gospel. I think in the book, I mentioned the fact that it gave common dialogue, a basis for some common dialogue between the enslaved and the enslaver, where African-Americans could actually use the gospel to plead their case to the people who were enslaving them. And to, to uh, say, well, is this what Christ intended? Is this how you really want to, what's gonna happen to you if you continue this? You know, all those cogent arguments that you can make based in scripture. Did they not do that though uh, at their peril and suffered for it? They could have, but the idea was, well, it's your gospel. You gave me this book. This is the book you say you believe in. Uh, so it's a, a put up or shut up game. You know, it's either true or it's not true. And so many, you can hear, read many stories of those who were enslavers and called themselves a Christian who actually did free their slaves. A Shaker village over there um, in central Kentucky, that was one of the arguments. You couldn't become a shaker and be a slaveholder. And they also admitted uh, formerly enslaved African-Americans. That's how so many ended up living in Shaker Village because those who wanted to become shakers who were, by the way, I should add, and the book talks about how engaged they were in the Underground Railroad movement. One of the things they had to do was give up their enslaved property. So, and many times those enslaved Mem formerly enslaved people stayed at the Shaker Village. So I haven't done enough research into how many of them actually became conductors, but it's very possible when you look at where the Shaker Villages were situated, and the map speaks to that in the construction of these escape routes. Dr. Turley, how do you um, answer the question or argue the point uh, what the Civil War why the Civil War was fought? Well, okay. This is always a question I'm asked when I do public speaking. So I will say the Civil War was fought over the issue of slavery. And I understand people will say it, but it was about states' rights. The major argument between the North and the South is the South, the South remained agricultural while the North became industrial. There was no Southern economy without enslaved African-Americans. So yes, it's a slave's right, uh, Southern right to decide we're gonna maintain our economy, but in order to maintain the economy, 
you needed free labor, enslaved labor. So either way you talk about it, the construction of the South is built solidly on a slave economy. So whether you think it was states' rights, okay. We as a nation decided we don't support as a nation an ancient practice of slavery. So this is what the war was fought over. Uh, Dr. Alistine Turley is our guest on uh, our Think Humanities post, uh, podcast today, and her her new book, uh, uh, so well received and reviewed uh, all across uh, the the country, all across uh, not just the state of Kentucky, from the University Press of Kentucky, the Gospel of uh, Freedom, uh, Black Evangelicals, and the Underground Railroad, and we're going to have more with Dr. Turley right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester, followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Dr. Turley's back with us now uh, as we wrap up, but I'll also mention uh, not only is she on a, a whirlwind speaking tour uh, with her new book, she's also available as a member of our Speakers Bureau and has been a member for uh, quite some time, and uh, a number of uh, her uh, talks have been and will continue to be uh, on the same subject matter, although right now she's um, she's uh, out and about with her book. But uh, just the, the titles alone um, tell me that there's been a lot of research and history done over the last... Uh, well, I'll just ask you, uh, Dr. Turley, because uh, many people are interested in writing and and uh, research and... and uh, how long did, did you spend on putting all of this together into a, a book form? This book is a labor of love, I would say, that began in my childhood. I, I shared um, the story of my great-grandfather, Moses Turley, who I talk about in this book. And I remember as a young child in school telling this story of Moses to my class, you know, when you come back after the end of the summer and you have a chance to talk about. So I brought this subject up and I was so embarrassed when the teacher said, well, you know, that story is not true. It's it's just a story Black people tell themselves to feel better about themselves. And I was so uh, embarrassed hurt. and hurt and not knowing how to uh, refute her argument because I, other than a family legend and stories, I had nothing written. So when I had an opportunity in graduate school through my wonderful sociology professor, Dr. Robert Bryant at Georgetown College, who said, well, Alistine, you're a college student now. So if this is a great research idea and if you wanna prove the story true or false, you can. And so he is the one who launched me into research to find out, prove true or false, the stories that Moses and my family had sent down over the years. And what? so this book is a result. Can, can you tell us that story? Of Moses? Yes. 
well, we heard stories. I live now in Powell County, and every August 8th, second Saturday in August, which at the time that I was growing up, I had no idea of the significance of that date. But our family, we will be celebrating our 159th 8th of August celebration on the second Saturday in August. So we've always celebrated that date as a family. And I, every um, summer at the end of the reunion, my grandmother, and then when she died, my uncles, and then when he died, my father would continue telling all the young children this story about Moses and Susan and how they came to live in Kentucky. And I, uh, so I grew up hearing the story, but I never realized it would turn into a book. But just to prove my teacher wrong, and I'm sure she's long dead now, but <laughs> but I'm committed, I was committed to uh, to the research and finding, yeah. and just was so amazed at what I found out that hadn't been looked at in the South when it came to African-American families. Well, I think that's a, a, a wonderful lesson, uh, Dr. Turley. If, if you leave us with anything today, it's that uh, we, we've become uh, quite accustomed to, and, and uh, some have grown up um, with, with Juneteenth as being the, the real marker for uh, a celebration, but it's and, and nothing to take away from that celebration and what it stands for, for and should for many, many people, but there, there are other dates too, like August there the 8th. There are other dates, and August 8th in Kentucky, Paducah, Kentucky, where I had the honor of speaking on for on behalf of the Humanities Council uh, on the 9th, is the longest running Emancipation Saturday celebration in the country. And it was begun by United States Colored Troops who were raised right there in Paducah, who were allowed to enlist People talk about the Emancipation Proclamation, but we overlook that proclamation admitted or created the ability for African-Americans to join the military. And even though African-Americans have fought in every war this country has been engaged in, it was not until the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, they were defined as soldiers. And mm -hmm. so from, from the time that Andrew Johnson to become vice president with Lincoln had to free his slaves. And he did so on August 8th. So that's where that celebration comes mm -hmm. from, especially here yeah. in Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky. And, and so many people, boy, I tell you what, that just uh, underscores, underlines uh, the need to know history, to, to teach Kentucky history uh, and not to shy away or, um, to in any way um, denigrate, uh, subtract from the, the the body of work that that's out there. That's why we 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 feel so passionately at Kentucky Humanities about um, the history that we do and and the support that we give the Historical Society and and so many others. Our Think History segments. Uh, it's important that people know these things. That just as a child in school, I never knew, even though we celebrated yeah. August 8th, had no idea yeah. why, you know, and, until my I tried as one year to move the our family reunion to another date. And the elders in my family almost lost their minds because, <laughs> no, you can't. And uh, I kept thinking, why? It's just a date. Well, but it's more than that. There ought to be um, there ought to be much more recognition and. 
uh, and celebration uh, for August the 8th. So maybe maybe we can all get that done in a better way. Uh, finally, Dr. Early, you, you've uh, certainly recognized as a, a scholar and a speaker, and um, uh, this book um, is uh, goes into your your body of research and work over the uh, over the years, um, and it will be celebrated for quite some time. What do you want historians or just regular readers, just book nerds that might pick this up at uh, uh, at the bookstore uh, to come away with uh, after reading your work? I'm hoping that this book leaves enough breadcrumbs behind that after they've read chapters of it, they began to explore um, their own possible part in this Southern history. I mean, that's there's no way I could cover the topic fully myself. I could only give you places to start. So when I'm hoping when the readers pick the book up and read it, that they will pick, find something of interest in there that they would like to know more about and go into it more fully. I think they will be so amazed at the strings of history that they are able to connect to that they just didn't know about. Well, Dr. Turley, uh, thanks uh, again for joining us today and thanks for your work on this. And we will uh, do our best to, to attend a, a couple of your talks and catch up with you on the road. You're going to be you're going to be on the road a lot. Uh, I'll be on the road. <laughs> you sure will. And um, maybe um, do you know how you're going to spend August 8th, uh, 2023 this year? Well, we always we're having the reunion here and maybe Bill, you, I'll invite you to come. We'll, it'll be here in uh, my grandparents uh, farm here in eastern Kentucky that they purchased in 1870. And oh, wow. so we invite people to come back. Well, we're inviting you. We can't invite the entire public, but we're inviting you to join us for this well, year's that's, celebration. That's very nice. Thank you very much. And uh, we wish you the best and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.